Hello, everyone. How are we doing tonight? I'm well, thank you. All right, we agreed to do another open study tonight, and a few people stepped up to the plate and provided some good questions, and I still had, remember, a few that I hadn't answered from uh, before, so I've got a total of 10 questions to answer tonight. I doubt I'll answer all 10, since I only got one answered last time, but that was your fault, not my fault because you guys kept asking subsequent questions, which was good. I enjoyed that last week. Our, you know, I hope, I hope you guys did as well. That's one of the benefits of a, of a good open study. They're not all, all as good as, you know, they can be, but, you know, when one question stimulates another, you know, you can end up with some very interesting study time together. And that seems like happened last time. All right, so tonight, 10 questions. I'm just going to launch right in to the first one. And I'm not doing these in order that I received them. I'm going to do some of the more recent ones first while they're fresh on people's minds. Uh, This one was this. When a person dies, does their soul ever stay on the earth for any time after death? Meaning, Does the soul kind of like hang around on earth uh, following death? Or like sometimes you'll see, how many of you ever seen a movie where it portrays someone dies and their soul kind of hangs around? There was a a famous movie a few years ago called Ghost in which which, um, someone died, they were murdered, and then, you know, their, their soul hung around and solved the murder, you know, and then eventually went to heaven after that. Uh, I can't. Uh, recommend the movie, but you know I'm just referencing that if you've ever seen it as an example of the question. All right, the answer is pretty straightforward. No, absolutely not under any circumstances. No, no, no. Um, there is nothing in the Bible, either by way of instruction or by way of example, that would indicate this. Uh, as soon as a person dies, their soul is immediately taken. And it's taken off of the earth, and it's taken to one of two locations. We're talking now not like we did last week in the previous open study um, about what happened to souls in the Old Covenant time period after death, though that was somewhat similar, but now in reference to the new covenant disposition of souls at the point of death, each person that dies, their soul immediately is taken either to the heart of the earth, as we saw last study in the open study, where they are waiting in a place of discomfort for the final judgment. This is the place that we, that we traditionally refer to as hell. And what they're waiting for is the final judgment in which the Lord will then assign them their place in a more permanent location known as the lake of fire. Or their soul is taken immediately to heaven to be in the presence of the Lord and to wait for the final judgment and the disposition of their rewards 
as they will affect their eternal experience. So why is it such a common concept, though? And that, this wasn't asked in the question, but this is just a follow-up. Why, why is this such a common point of misunderstanding among many, even among many believers? Um, it, it's nothing from the Bible that gives us this concept, but there are so many, you know, in just cultural experiences, not just today, but throughout the generations of what we would call or we would reference as ghost experiences or ghost stories. Um, Generally speaking, the way the world looks at the concept of ghosts, what the world calls ghosts, is a ghost equals the departed, meaning the dead souls of human beings. The Bible, of course, doesn't teach this. The experiences that people have and do have occasionally with what are called ghosts are properly identified not as departed souls of human beings, but as demonic experiences. Are there any exceptions to this? No, not really. There's no exceptions to this. I mean, it's possible that a person could have an experience with an angel The Bible does teach us that we, on occasion, might have an interaction with an angel and not even be aware that we're interacting with an angel. Um, And certainly, that could be in a person's mind that doesn't fully understand the biblical principles involved. That could be interpreted as a ghost experience. But generally speaking, ghost experiences have certain certain, um, features to them that angel experiences never have. And they're all similar to the experiences, the, the, the kind of uh, circumstances that surround demonic experiences as well. And I don't want to go off too far into that, only because that wasn't what the, what the person asked. But let me give you a couple of passages of Scripture that help with this question of what happens to the soul at the point of death. Uh, these are probably all familiar to you, but it's, it couldn't hurt to review them real quickly together. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, of course. And this is from the teaching of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, I'll read verses 6 through 8. Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So there are two key terms here in regards to the disposition of the soul at the point of death. And the two key terms used in this passage are home and away. And they both have, they're both in reference to being either two options in the physical body, our present experience, or with the Lord. Now this is not, of course, describing the experience of every human being at the point of death. This is describing the experience of believers. Because, of course, all human beings are presently in the body if they're alive, but when they die, they don't go to be with the Lord as we've already 
discussed. But for the believer, there are only two options. They're either in the body or they're with the Lord. So if they're in the body, they are at home in the body. And when life ends, the last breath is drawn, the last beat of the heart takes place, then they are away from the body and they go to be at home with the Lord. What, why, this is, why these two terms are important is that there is no third category. If there was a third category, Paul would have informed us of the third category. He would have said something along the lines of, we can be at home in the body, we can be away and be with the Lord, or we can just hang around here on earth and, you know, float around as a disembodied soul and do stuff for a while before we go to be with the Lord. But what is very clear is that there is no third category, so we're either in the body or we are with the Lord. There's no in-between place. Now let's look at another passage. This one we referenced in our study last week. It's good to reference it as well this week. Luke chapter 16. This is the story the Lord told of two individuals that died and what happened at the point of their death and what they experienced following their death. I'm not going to read the whole story. I just want to read one key verse. Luke 16.22, which gives us a a bit of information that applies to this specific question. The poor man, Luke 16.22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Key phrase here, carried by the angels. What does that imply? Okay, it does imply in terms of time frame, this took place immediately at death. He died, and what's the next experience? He's carried. But it's not all that is expressed in, the, in this short little description carried by the angels. So there's a time clue But there's also a condition that's described, at least by implication here. What's the condition? The condition is the man who dies isn't in charge of what happens to him following his death. We We don't choose for ourselves, decide for ourselves. We're not in charge or in control of ourselves in terms of what happens to our soul at the point of death. We are... 100% under someone else's control and charge. And that someone else, of course, is the Lord. So in this case, the poor man dies. He's in good relationship with the Lord, right relationship with the Lord. He's carried by the angels. This, understand, is still before the cross and the resurrection. This relates to our study last week. He's carried into this place that is called both paradise and Abraham's bosom. It's a place that was in the heart of the earth during the Old Testament time period, which was a pleasant designation, a pleasant uh, destination for righteous souls to wait until the coming of Christ. And then once Christ came, once he died on the cross, once he rose from the dead, once he ascended back to the right hand of God, 
all of those righteous souls in that pleasant place, that paradise, that Abraham's bosom place, were taken by the Lord to heaven with him, where they remain waiting along with all the other souls that have died subsequently in right relationship with the Lord, waiting for the final judgment. But the point of this is carried by the angels. This is, this is a description of a soul that's under authority, not in authority. So the angel is in charge, but the angel represents 100% the Lord's authority in this circumstance. And so the Lord says to the angel, we understand that angels are servants of the Lord, messengers of the Lord. They only do what the Lord tells them to do. There are no free agent angels that do whatever they want to do. So if he's carried by the angels to a specific location, that implies that the Lord has commanded those angels to carry that specific soul at the point of death to that specific destination. Under control or authority, not in control, not in authority. Next passage, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This passage is an extended word picture of old age leading to death. Right after... um, Right after Proverbs and just before the Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes 12. I'll read the first seven verses. This is like kind of like a summary word of exhortation to all believers. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Now, the imagery that is going to follow in these next few verses is imagery of a physical body that's wearing out and breaking down in old age. And the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, that's like the legs are not strong any longer, And the grinders, that's the teeth, cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows, that's the eyes, are dimmed. And the doors, the door, excuse me, the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, meaning doesn't sleep so soundly anymore. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust, this is now a very specific language of death, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit does what? Returns to God who gave it. Now this is, of course, a description of a believer, someone who's in covenant relationship with the Lord. But the clear wording is, the Spirit returns to God who gave it. 
Uh, doesn't return under its own volition, under its own control. We've seen from the other passage, it returns by the agency of being carried by the angels. Think of it this way. Let's say if you were to die and you were in charge of where your soul went, would you know where to go? (laughs) I wouldn't. I've never been anywhere in my soul purely. So, you know, it would be like trying to find some unknown location. But we're not under control of our, of our own determination at that point. We're strictly, entirely, 100% under God's control. And we are carried by angels to where we belong. All right, any questions about that first question then? About whether souls hang around on the face of the earth at the point of death? Okay, go ahead. Oh, at the uh, very end of the Gospel of Matthew? All right, let's, let's go look at that. It's a very interesting passage. And of course, eventually we'll get there in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, but that may be quite a while. Do you know the specific location of, the, of which chapter? 2752. I'll just go ahead and read it and then and then you can ask your question. All right, starting in verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is, of course, when Jesus was actually on the cross. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, and what's your question from that passage? Yes. Right. Sure, absolutely. We don't know which specific saints they were. All we know is that they were saints, meaning these were, these were true believers who had died. And they were, they were resurrected from the dead, just like Lazarus in John chapter 11 was resurrected from the dead. And they came out of their tombs and they entered the holy city. And witnesses saw them and had some kind of interaction with them. I absolutely believe that they were real physical bodies and they were real people. These weren't just apparitions. They weren't quote-unquote ghosts. They were actual resurrection cases. But I would put them in the same category of resurrection as the Lazarus-type resurrection, meaning I don't believe this was a resurrection to a glorified body like we see in the resurrection of Jesus and like we're promised to later experience ourselves at the same moment as the, as the second coming of Christ, in which we will all rise from the dead and, and be given new, glorified, eternal, physical bodies. I don't believe these bodies that these saints were given for this particular moment in time, this particular special purpose. It's the only time anywhere in the Bible we see an example like this, and this is clearly 
serving a special purpose to testify to the unique and special event that was taking place at that very moment, which was the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God dying for the sins you know, of humanity at that point. Very, very important thing going on. So it was a special event that God did in that regard. But I would put them in the category of the John 11, you know, Lazarus kind of resurrection, which is not a permanent resurrection. Lazarus later died, and he is waiting just like the rest of the saints who have died for his permanent resurrection body. I believe these saints later died again, and how much later, we don't know, probably not a long time later. They probably didn't go on and live for years after this. We don't know for sure, because the scripture doesn't say one way or the other, but there's no indication that there was any extension of life beyond this special circumstance of testimony. You know, a miraculous testimony to confirm the unique event of the crucifixion of Christ. Does that make sense? Well, you have to assume a lot one way or the other because there's no explanation given to us on this particular passage. Nowhere else in Scripture is this event even discussed, described, or explained. So yes, no matter what conclusion you draw, you're going to have to make some conclusions or some assumptions. So the only thing I can do is make assumptions based upon other biblical principles that seem to apply to the circumstance. And that's my best shot at it. You know, I can't guarantee you that's exactly the case, but I would be, uh, I'd be surprised if it's different than how I described. That's the best way I could say it to you. Okay? Yes. Maria? Which body? You're talking about this passage we were just discussing? Yeah, they're in the tomb, which was actually technically above the ground. Yeah, the souls were, remember, let's, let, let, me, let me put it this way, okay? Here's the heart of the earth. The souls were in this two-compartment place in the heart of the earth. One compartment being the pleasant place, paradise. The other compartment being the unpleasant place, which is Gehenna. And all of it is described as Hades, which is the unseen realm. Um, when those souls were resurrected from the dead, what had to have happened is the Lord himself called those souls out of paradise. These are all righteous souls. They're souls of saints, not souls of some saints and some sinners. Um, They're called out of paradise, reunited with their physical bodies, raised from the dead to serve a special temporary purpose of testimony. And then when they died, they went not back to paradise, but most likely with the Lord ascending to heaven 40 days later. But I mean, if they, if they didn't last for the full 40 days, which is possible, then, you know, because there's a 40-day time lag, um, then, it's, then they would have gone right back to paradise and waited for him to take captivity captive and to lead them all to heaven. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely correct. Francis, okay. Karen? Of course it does. Yes. Yes. Near-death experiences, yes. Well, you know what? It's a very interesting subject, near-death experiences. 
And the Bible doesn't directly address it, so we're left to apply certain principles to what we see in those circumstances or what is described later. Um, number one, a lot of the people that say they die may, may have died, may not have died. You know, it's possible to think you're dead and not actually be dead. Okay? Number two is if you really did die and you lived a life rejecting Christ as Lord and Savior, and at the point of death, you have this experience of this wonderful generic white light, which is a common theme in the testimony. And it's this all forgiving, all embracing, all accepting, you know, white light that has no judgment and renders no evaluation of how the person actually lived. You can be pretty fairly, absolutely, 100% certain of what? That's a deceiving experience, not a real experience. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, we're told, you know, Satan himself even portrays himself to human beings as an angel of light. You know, I'm not saying that in every one of those cases they have a direct experience of Satan, but I am saying that, you know, what people say when they come back from those experiences can be evaluated based upon what is clearly revealed in God's Word. And that's what I do. When I hear those kind of stories, I evaluate what they've experienced and what they believe after the experience, what they say after the experience, and how they live after the experience, because the tree is known by the fruit that it bears. And, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily fully judge the experience because you weren't there, you know, but you can judge the fruit that the experience has produced in their life. And it either is from God or it's not from God. And it either was God or not God that they had an experience of at that at that point. So, okay. Was it? Okay. All right. Let's move on to question number two. This was a very interesting one. It's somewhat similar to the first one. How many of you are familiar with the term cryonics? This is a technical scientific category. Cryonics is the so-called science of freezing human bodies or parts of human bodies, like organs, just before, or just, excuse me, just after the point of death, in the hope, the people who practice cryonics, who believe in cryonics, in the hope that if we freeze this person and preserve their body in this frozen condition, then some future generation, we may we may develop a technology that's so advanced that we will be able to, let's say they have cancer and they die, we freeze them at the immediate point of their death and then we thaw them out 300 years from now. And they have, by you know, technological uh, me- medical advances, they have determined that that's no big deal, we can fix that now, so we're going to thaw that person out and they will go on living their life 300 years from now as though you know they, uh, as though we had been able to cure them while they were here. So the question that was asked is, what happens in a in a circumstance of cryonics to the soul while the body is frozen? I'm going to read to you from a website. This website is uh, it's a company by the name of Alcor. They 
are the world's leading cryonics company. And if you're interested in freezing yourself, you should go deal with uh, Alcor because they seem to be leading the field of cryonics, okay? Um, the, the Alcor site describes cryonics in this way. This isn't all they say, but I lifted a, a, a key, a key uh, descriptive. Cryonics, this is what they say. Cryonics is a speculative life support technology that seeks to preserve human life in a state that will be, will be viable and treatable by future medical technology. Alcor intervenes in the dying process as soon as possible after legal death to preserve the brain as well as possible. All right, the key word in that description was speculative. Now, I appreciated their honesty. A lot of companies wouldn't be that honest. They would just tell you, it's a life support technology. They said, honestly, it's a speculative life support technology. What does that mean? It means we're taking a shot here. We have no idea whether it will ever actually work. And I will say this. I am a big fan, just on a pure enjoyment level, of the category of literature and entertainment, television, movies, books, of what is called science fiction. I love science fiction. I enjoy it immensely. And I have seen some good science fiction shows that used cryonics as the basis of a particular story, and I was thoroughly entertained by it. But when the time comes for me to die, will I be setting aside money to go to Alcor and have them freeze me at the moment of my death in hopes that 300 or 500 or 1,000 years from now, they can thaw me out and I can go on living my life. Absolutely not. It's a total, complete waste of money. Why? Because human beings are not in charge of their own souls. Just like the first question that we responded to, The Lord is in charge of the soul. Every soul. Every soul without exception is under his control. So you freeze your body. And let's just say, because technology does advance as history marches on, we get smarter and better at certain technological advances. That's that's unquestionable if you just look at the last hundred years in advances of technology, you know, alone. Give us another 300 years, and if the Lord doesn't return, we will advance in incredible ways in the next 300 years. And I believe it may be possible to freeze the body and then to address issues with the body 300 years in the future that we're not able to effectively address medically today. But even so, that doesn't mean the soul is going to return to that body. Why? Because the Lord's in charge of that. It's as simple as that. And there's just no, there's no getting around that. I mean, the, the whole thing of this kind of concept is we are in charge of our own lives. But the, the Scripture is just so, so very, very clear on this core issue. And, and if a person isn't clear on this, they're not clear on anything. 
We're not in charge of ourselves. And, and the, the one thing we're least in charge of in all of life is our own soul. Only the Lord is in charge of it. He created it, and He will control it at the point of death. So what will happen in the future with cryonics, you know, I, I would say there's one possible uh, there's one possible application that could theoretically be developed in the future. There's two branches of cryonics. One is to freeze the whole body in hopes that you know a person who dies can be brought back to life and, and cured. That's absolutely never going to happen. But the other part, the other branch of cryonics is freezing specific organs in hopes that that organ can later be treated while the person's still alive. Like let's say you froze an organ today and 50 years from now if you were still alive they thawed it out and advances in medicine you know, were able to treat that organ and it's in better condition because of the new treatments that have been developed in the next 50 years than it is today. I, could say, I, I would say that's at least theoretically possible. Certainly doesn't violate any biblical concepts of you know, the Lord's sovereignty in that regard. But, I mean, who wants to take an organ out of your body right now and wait 50 years for them to possibly develop something you know, to, to work on that? So, uh, in terms of cryonics, no, I'm not going uh, to be spending any of my money in that, in that category. All right, any questions on cryonics as biblical principles apply? Uh, you know, something I can say about this... Um, where in the Bible does it address cryonics? Nowhere. I mean, this is a, a technological possibility, a theory, that people, you know, when the Bible was written, never even conceived of, never even considered. The Bible doesn't directly address a lot of things in our present world. But does that mean that the Bible is therefore, you know, silent or absent in regards to those issues? I am a strong believer in this. God has designed his word in such a way that, of course, he couldn't possibly address every single thing that can be experienced in life. If that were the case, instead of carrying a book this size into the room, we'd be carrying a book the size of the room into the room. It just would be unmanageable. But what the Lord has done is he has addressed certain principles that speak to everything we can ever experience in life. So the Lord has given us specific and sufficient information to leave us equipped and prepared to face any experience that can ever be imagined or ever be developed by any human endeavor ever, no matter how long history lasts until he returns. So we're never left unprepared, unequipped, ignorant. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to think about this because God's word has prepared us in that manner. Now I will um, give you one passage to link to this. Very famous story. I referenced it earlier. Uh, John chapter 11. This is the resurrection of Lazarus. So the original question was, what about chronics? What happens to the soul while the body is frozen? The answer to that is the soul goes where the Lord designates for that soul to go. So if the body of the person that is theoretically frozen is a true believer, then that soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven. If the 
the person that dies and is frozen is an unbeliever, then that soul goes to Gehenna to wait final judgment. And this passage, this story of the resurrection of Lazarus, gives us a, a clear indication of what we're dealing with here in terms of the potential reuniting of the body with the soul. Uh, John eleven thirty nine. I'll I'll read from thirty eight, I guess. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, "Take away the stone." Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said... These things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. All right, so how is the, the what's the, the one possibility of a soul being reunited with the body? When the Lord says to that person, come out. You know, when the Lord says to that person, soul, you know, come from your present location and be reunited with this body. He and he alone has authority over the disposition of the human soul. All right, next question, if there's no follow-up questions on that. A lot of interesting soul stuff here in the last three questions. This next one, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Numbers. Yes, John? You guys go ahead and turn to numbers while he's asking. Uh, what do you mean, what happened? Where was his soul? What do you think? I think so, too. Okay. I believe that's exactly right. Yeah. The only other possibility is that his soul went to heaven, you know, during the, the interim. Um, but there's an indication from the interaction between Jesus and, and uh, Mary at the tomb on the day of his resurrection when he said, don't cling to me, I've not yet ascended to my father, which, you know, would at least be a hint and an indication that he hasn't, you know, had not yet returned to heaven I believe there's good theological and biblical reason why he wouldn't have returned to heaven yet because he's returning in full conquest mode to heaven. It's like a a formal entry and his resurrection is part of that full victory, that culmination of the entire mission. So I absolutely believe that his soul went to paradise. He was with Moses, Abraham, Elijah, you know, and all the all the saints of old for those three days and three nights, I believe that, uh, in the heart of the earth. And uh, then at the end of that time, he rose from the dead and continued on for you know, the next 40 days with his disciples until his ascension, like you, like you laid out. All right, Numbers 35. This is a longer section. 
Let me read you the question before we tackle it. And I may not even read the whole section. I just want you to, because it's very long, I want you to at least be familiar with the passage that we're dealing with. The question concerned verses 12 through 28. And it's this category of the, um, the plan of designating for special purpose certain portion of the promised land. This is... Um, this is the Lord giving instructions to Moses who's then laying out that this is what's going to happen when they move into the promised land. And that is a designation of specific cities that are going to be set aside from the, um, the inheritance given to the Levitical priests. The Levitical priests were given not territory to live in, but specific cities that they were assigned to live in throughout the land, the promised land. And out of those uh, territories and out of those Levitical cities, there were there were three special cities set aside for a what was called city of refuge, and these were inside the the uh, known boundaries of the Promised Land. And then on the other side of the River Jordan, there were another additional three cities set aside for the same purpose. Now. Um, the the uh, passage in Numbers 12 through 28 describes this in great detail. And this was the question. In the case of intentional murder, the avenger of blood, the next of kin to the victim, was allowed to put the murderer to death. But if there was no evil intent, escape to a city of refuge shielded the manslayer from the avenger. Was God sanctioning a form of personal revenge in this law, or was God simply regulating an ancient practice that would be difficult to eradicate altogether during the time of Moses? Now, this is, this is a, um, a provision of the, under the law that not a lot of believers are very familiar with. It seems somewhat distant to us. Uh, there's no, certainly, there's no direct New Testament example of this kind of thing. So this was something that was part of the Old Covenant um, justice system as God ordained it in his law. And essentially what you had was this. If there was a conflict that took place with, within the community of Israel in which one Israelite, through malice in his heart, struck or harmed in such a way to cause the death of another Israelite, but they meant to harm them. They meant to kill them. It was an intentional murder. And then having murdered that person, of course, if it was known to the community, there might be, there might be a, uh, an effort on the part of the murderer to escape accountability for that action, to flee the city. What would happen in that case is that the Lord designated a special role from the family, the surviving family of the victim. This special role was called avenger of blood. And this person was deputized by the Lord. They did not ordinarily have this authority, but in this special case, they were granted authority by the Lord for a period of time and for one specific purpose. And they would, this this member of the surviving family, and it was of course a man in every case that, that took on this role, and they were 
authorized, deputized by the Lord to go out and chase down the murderer. And they were authorized that when they found the murderer, when they caught the murderer, they could legally, without committing a sin or crime themselves, end the life of the murderer in a formal execution. All right? However, sometimes in a dispute or just in an interaction where one person is harmed and they, their, their life is lost in that circumstance, it may be the case where the person that has caused the harm never intended to harm the person that was harmed, never intended to end the life of the other person, had no malice in their heart, no plan to murder. It was an accidental death. Now, we say accidental using you know, familiar terms. There's no, technically, there are no such things as ultimately in the philosophical, biblical sense as accidents. But what we're talking about is an unintentional death. What would happen in that case? Well, the avenger of blood was designated to go into action because he can't necessarily evaluate the motive of the person that has caused his next of kin's death. And so what the Lord did is he provided a place of safety away from the location of the event itself where the person that has unintentionally caused the death of a fellow Israelite could flee to one of these designated cities. And they were geographically located throughout Israel so that no matter where you were, you didn't have to travel oppressively far to reach one of these places of safety. Having reached the cities of refuge, they were to present themselves to the elders of that city, describe their case to the elders of that city, so that they could evaluate the motive of the person and the actual case, and they were allowed to remain within that city safe from the intentions of the avenger of blood who is hot on their trail, usually. And as long as they remained in that city of refuge, they were safe. If they left the city of refuge and the avenger of blood was waiting outside the city, then the avenger of blood was given the authorization to go ahead and end their life. Their leaving the city was taken as an indicator that they were actually guilty in that circumstance. The only other provision was that um, this, all, this whole scenario lasted as long as the high priest who was alive at the time um, remained alive. As soon as the high priest died, then uh, the person that had caused the death was allowed to return to their original home without threat from the avenger of blood. All right, so the question was, in the case of intentional murder, the avenger of blood, the next of kin to the victim, was allowed to put the murderer to death. But if there was no evil intent, escaped to a city of refuge, shielded the manslayer from the avenger. Was God sanctioning a form of personal revenge? The answer to that is clearly... No. God never, throughout the Bible, we studied this just this last Sunday, uh, never sanctions personal revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. If vengeance, retribution, retaliation is needed, we do not bring about that retaliation for personal, emotional reasons. 
we allow the Lord to bring that about. So the avenger of blood role was not personal revenge in action. Or even family revenge in action. Um, the, the follow-up question was, or was God simply regulating an ancient practice that would be difficult to eradicate altogether during the time of Moses? The answer to this is partly yes and partly no. Yes, this was an ancient practice that far preceded the actual law of Moses. And God addressed it in his law to regulate this ancient practice. The ancient practice was known as blood feud. How many of you remember from American history the Hatfields and the McCoys? That's where, you know, one family does another, you know, one member of one family does the member of another family wrong, and that starts a a feud. And, you know, that just continues on. It's like, okay, one guy kills someone from another family. So the members of the other family get together, and they identify someone from the first family, and they kill him. And then what does the first family do? We've got to get revenge for them killing our family members, so we go and kill one of theirs. And it just keeps, it's a cycle of revenge that never ends. So yes, the Lord was regulating this ancient practice in the old world. This was huge. Blood feud among tribes was a gigantic issue. So yes, in his law, the Lord was regulating this. However, I don't want to say that he was only regulating this because it would be too hard to eradicate. In that sense, God's law never compromises with human sin. Meaning, God never never adds something to his law just because I can't, I can't eliminate this from my kingdom, my society of people altogether. So I'll just give them a law to kind of limit the expression of this evil practice. This was... This avenger of blood concept was not revenge. It was not blood feud. It was not an evil practice at all. It was a proper expression of justice. Now, we in our modern society have a justice system that's somewhat more fully developed than the just criminal justice system of the ancient world. For instance, if someone commits a crime in the city of Los Angeles, and they hop on a plane, and they fly to get away, to escape accountability, to escape justice, they fly to another state in our United States of America, how, would we say in that circumstance they have, they have most surely forever escaped justice? No, we have a justice system that goes into action. So the local authorities may not be able to hold that person accountable, but there are local authorities in that other location, and there are extra local authorities, national authorities, state authorities, that will hold that person accountable even if the local authorities in the place of the original crime cannot. And so we have that today. They did not have that in the ancient world. And so what the Lord did was he appointed, deputized, authorized specific special agents for special cases. And that's what this is. 
The avenger of blood, very interesting term, is a really bad translation. Blood is a good part of the translation, but avenger, if you look in the original Hebrew language, is not the word for revenge or anything related to the word revenge at all. It's an unfortunate translation. The word literally is redeemer. And it's the same word that's used, for instance, in the book of Ruth. Remember when Ruth and Boaz came together and were married. And Boaz acted as a near kinsman redeemer and brought Ruth under his authority and married her and covered her. It's the same word. So technically, the term of the person that was chasing the criminal down is not avenger of blood, but redeemer of blood. And it represents God's justice. Remember all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the very first murder, when one brother in the garden murdered another brother. Actually, technically, this is outside of the garden, but I'm going back to Garden of Eden times. I should say it more, more accurately. What did the Lord say when he showed up to hold Cain accountable for Abel's murder. What did he first say to Abel? Does anybody remember what the Lord said to him? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So whenever blood is spilled by one human being, unrighteously um, ending the life of another human being, the Lord himself takes account of that, and he made in his law provision for a redeemer of blood, someone who would come and ensure that justice was enacted in that circumstance. So this, to me, is not a, a, a revenge scenario at all in the law of Moses. This is a justice scenario as applied in an ancient world setting. Okay? Any other questions on the, on the uh, cities of refuge concept? Yes. That's correct. Unless they were in the city of refuge. And when the person arrived in the city of refuge, as I mentioned, they had to present themselves to the elders of the city. If the elders of the city discerned and evaluated and determined that they really were a murderer, they weren't allowed to stay in the city. They were rejected out of the city. And here comes the redeemer of blood to enact justice in that circumstance. And he did not have to take them back. You know, this is more like a John Wayne and True Grit kind of uh, scenario. You know, judge, jury, and executioner all in one. But, but not out of revenge, representing the Lord's authority in this circumstance, in a specially designated situation. I'm sorry, what? Which, are you referring to a specific passage? Uh, Numbers 35. I don't know, are you referring to a specific passage is what I'm asking? Okay. No, that's all right. I'll wait. Okay. 
If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer. Yeah. Absolutely. This is God's... No, no, no. Yeah, this is, of course, a circumstance in which it has been observed that this person ended this other person's life. And there's still the possibility, even with witnesses, we don't know what the motive was. We don't know if it was intentional. We don't know if it was an an accident. That's left for the spiritual evaluation of the elders of the city of refuge that the person flees to. But yes, in every case, the mouth of two or three witnesses, you know, let it be established. Absolutely. There was a, a standard of justice there. Yeah, it's not so much the, the, what you're referring to as a first set of judges. Uh, it's not so much a first set of judges because if the person stays there in the city, the elders of that city will make the determination about the crime that was committed. The Avendra blood goes into action when the person flees the city. It's kind of like, you know, a death has occurred, one person caused another person's death, and then they flee. So the Avendra blood just automatically... Near, nearest of kin goes into action in that circumstance. No, I mean, every family, generally speaking, had, you know, it was kind of like a, an, an understanding of who would go into action in such a circumstance. Who, who is our redeemer of blood? Who is, our, who is our duly appointed representative for this particular family? Yeah. Very interesting scenario, though, for sure. Okay, let's, let's see if we can uh, tackle another question. Okay, on that one? On that last thing? Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, you're 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 postulating a scenario in which um, the avenger of blood catches him before he reaches the city. Absolutely, the avenger of blood could end his life in that circumstance. And you say, well, what if he's actually innocent? Well, the Lord will sort it out on the day of judgment. It's just like what happens today if someone is executed and they're actually innocent of the charges that they're you know convicted of. The Lord will sort it out on the day of judgment. Yeah, it's it's at least a theoretical possibility. All right. Um, yes, that's okay. He who? Okay, or killed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, he could. He could take his chances, so to speak, by remaining in the city and presenting his case before the elders of the city. Or he could flee. Yes. Absolutely. And you know, the thing about the cities of refuge, it was it was a it was a designated place of safety. 
you know, because you know how it is. Maybe the elders won't see it the proper way. You know, maybe, you know, maybe I won't uh, be given the kind of response that I'm hoping to receive from this evaluation. So that that's why the Lord made the provision for the, the cities of refuge. So. Yeah. Karen? Well, he is if, if the authorities of the city aren't dealing with the circumstance. But the authorities of the city would take precedence over the, over the avenger of blood. In, in terms of, you know, the enacting of justice in the city, the elders of the city were the first and primary source of justice in the city. The avenger of blood scenario is, is um, dealing with the scenario or the circumstance in which a person is, has left the city is trying to escape that circumstance. Whether guilty or innocent, he's left the city for that purpose. So that's when the Avenger of Blood is designated to go and chase him down. But yeah, in the city, if he stays, you know, the, the case is going to pre- be presented before the elders of the city. And it's their responsibility to make the determination. Then he's, then he's innocent. Absolutely, sure. And if they say he's guilty, then he gets stoned, you know, and he dies. He's executed, so. All right. Um, Let me see if I can tackle a couple of these quickly. Um, If God didn't judge after the Tower of Babel incident, would we all speak the same language today? Well, I mean, you know, this is, of course, a theoretical possibility because the Tower of Babel did happen and, and God did judge and God did confuse the languages of the nations and that actually, while it was a response to the sin of the people of the Tower of Babel, it served the Lord's greater purpose in history. Nevertheless, yes, theoretically, if the Tower of Babel had not occurred and the Lord had not confused the languages, yes, we would. Uh, certainly the entire world prior to that all spoke the same language and... Um, all of them, of course, had immediately descended from the family of Noah and the ark, and they all spoke the same language. So the, the descendants that immediately following the uh, exit from the ark that began to populate the earth and led to the um, building of the Tower of Babel were all speaking the same language. Um, everybody good with that? I'll move on to another one. Did Adam and Eve know all things before the flood? For instance, math, physics, etc. Very interesting question, actually. Uh, No, the answer is no. They did not have perfect knowledge. They were in a condition that we refer to theologically as innocence. I do believe, though, they had a perfect capacity to learn and to know whatever they were taught. Um, how many of you have had the experience of being taught something, and maybe even the teacher did a good job of teaching it, but you had a hard time hanging on to the information? Anybody had that experience? <laughs> All right. I don't believe Adam and Eve had that issue. I believe their minds were perfectly capable of learning. So uh, they did not know um, physics, for instance. But I do believe that if God, and we're talking about before the fall, if God had given them a quick class in physics, they would have immediately grasped it and understood it. 
So I think they had a perfect capacity for knowledge and learning, but they were uh, relatively blank slates in terms of what they actually knew right at the beginning. That's for sure. Okay, any uh, follow-up questions on, on that particular point? All right, uh, here's one. Uh, the Grand Tetons Visitor Center says that mountains were created 700 million years ago. They explain it took that much time for volcanoes, glaciers, and earthquakes to thrust the mountains up. If, is that true? And if not, how did all this happen in a shorter period of time? All right, I'll just speak for myself. You know, I can't be dogmatic on this particular point because the Bible doesn't address it directly. The Bible doesn't say anything directly about the Grand Tetons, um, you know, in terms of name and date. But I am personally what is referred to in, in uh, issues of the age of the earth and theological terms. I am a young earth believer. What that means is I believe the earth is relatively, in comparison to how it's commonly scientifically described as in terms of its age today, I believe it's fairly young. Um, I do not believe that the earth is billions of years old as it's described to us. I'm convinced that many of the geological features that are commonly ascribed to a long, gradual process change actually occurred fairly rapidly. And most of the large mountain ranges that we see in the earth today are a function of the result of the flood of Noah. That's what I personally believe. Let me give you um, a couple of passages that I think will help on this. Second um, Peter chapter 3. One of the questions that people commonly struggle with is in the, uh, the scenario that the Bible describes in the flood circumstance. Um, people look at, like over here in the boundary between China and Tibet and India, there's this mountain range known as the... the um, Somebody help me out here. What's the mountain range? Himalayas, thank you. And, you know, you've got Mount Everest there, and you've got K2. You've got these gigantic mountains. And the question that's often asked is, okay, if we believe in a flood of the entire earth as is described in Genesis, by the way, not all Christians believe in a whole earth flood. I do. I believe in a whole earth flood. Um, it's a common thing of, how could the waters have been so deep as to cover because they would have to, it describes every mountain was covered with water. That would include Mount Everest. So that would be a lot of water. And what happened to all that water? Where did it come from? Where did it go? All right, well, I don't believe Mount Everest was as tall as it is now at the time of the flood. It's as simple as that. I believe that the flood caused the, the raising of the gigantic mountain ranges that we know so well today. Second Peter chapter 3 helps with this, or it helps me with this anyway. I'll read, the whole section is very important, um, but I'll just read a few verses starting in verse 4. 
they will say, this is scoffers, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's, their, that, that's what they're postulating, that, that every, everything that we know on the face of the earth today is about the same as it was at the beginning of the world and history as we know it. And then this is Peter's comment about that. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now, there's a big implication in this simple description, and that is the world before the flood perished. The flood destroyed that world. And the world that came into existence as the flood subsided was a different world than the world that existed before the flood. Now, there's more than one way in which the world was different. One of the ways, I am a big believer in this concept, that there was around the surface of the entire planet a cloud cover, a vapor canopy that covered the entire planet and made the planet more like a terrarium so that there were no polar ice caps and there was no, there was no uh, vast differences in temperatures and uh, climate zones of that nature. Uh, I believe that everything was just very, very pleasant, very warm, very fruitful, and it was a, an entirely different kind of environment, heavily oxygen-rich environment. And that, that vapor canopy no longer exists. Why does it no longer exist? Because that's 40 days of rain in the flood. But 40 days of rain in the flood is not the only thing that changed in the flood. Turn back, if you would, and this is the last one for tonight. Uh, Genesis chapter 7, I just want to read a single verse. This is a flood description. Single verse, uh, Genesis 7.11. says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh, 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven of the heavens were opened. And then it goes on to describe that rain fell for 40 days. Say, so the, uh, the description of what happened in the circumstance of the flood is a double description. And most of the time when believers read the story of the flood, they're focused only on the rain that fell from the heavens on the earth for 40 days. But the other thing that took place that's described is a geological uh, upheaval that is described as fountains of the deep breaking up. Meaning, what's implied here is huge geological shifts took place. Now, I was watching, this this is just, you know, I didn't plan this out. I was watching a show last night on the uh, Japanese tsunami that recently took place. It was on uh, public television, so they were showing some scientific graphs of what took place to cause this tsunami. 
And apparently what happened from what they can ascertain is that, you know, just off the coast of Japan, you know, there were, there is a, uh, two plates of the earth's crust join right there, just off of the coast of Japan. And that those two plates shifted ground against each other and thrust up one chunk of rock. It was a big chunk of rock, but one single chunk of rock was thrust up and not, you know, not surfacing, but just thrust up from its previous location. It was thrust up so forcefully that it caused a, a spike in the water level that went to seven meters and then traveled in every direction. And of course, this direction was right near the shore of Japan. And in some places, I didn't realize this, but in some places the, the, the waters went five kilometers inland and just wiped out, you know, whole neighborhoods, whole cities were, were completely inundated with water and destroyed. And of course, many people lost their lives. This was just one single chunk that caused, you know, massive devastation. What is described here is not a singular location, but all the fountains of the deep were broken up by the Lord and I believe caused massive geological shifts. Now, when those shifts take place, what happens is, you know, when, when one giant sheet of rocks shifts this direction, then this sheet of rocks shifts this other direction, and it causes things to rise that wouldn't ordinarily have risen. So I believe all of the great mountainous regions that we know, the Himalayas, the Andes, and on and on, probably the Rocky Mountains fit into this as well, um, were formed during the time of the flood. That's my personal belief. I don't believe it took 700 million years of gradual shifting just a little bit at a time. I believe it took place at a single great devastating moment under the Lord's control for his purposes. And, you know, there are many other questions relating to the, the age of the earth issue. I can't possibly address all of those tonight, but, you know, just so you can hear me say it in terms of how I think about it, what I, what I believe about it. I do believe that the earth is relatively new and recent, and um, I believe that, uh, that scientifically, while most people that uh, consider themselves scientists don't agree with that or believe that today, I believe that in the end, um, that concept will be proven to be true. So, any other questions on that? Because if not, we're already over our time, and I appreciate you guys' patience.